Hi, I'm Chief Irshad, Scotland Corporal Association and Edinburgh University Corporal Book Club, and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, it's Christy Smiley from Edinburgh City Corporal Club and Scotland. You're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Pitt from the Scottish Corporal Association and Edinburgh University Corporal Club, and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. I'm Nina Murdoch. I play for Edinburgh City Corporal Club, and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Corfball Player Profiles is the 14th season of the Half Court Press podcast. In this series, Theo McLeod talks to players about their lives outside of the sport, as well as their careers, experiences and perspectives within Corfball. Hi, I'm Vivek Santayana of the Edinburgh City Corfball Club and this is the Half Court Press podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Half Court Press podcast. You join us today with our Corfball player profiles. Today we get to hear from Vivek Santayana. Hey Vivek, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here talking about Corfball. It's not like I don't do that enough already. Every Corfball person I've spoken to knows, yeah, I'm an absolute Corfball nerd. Yeah, well... Um... I don't know if everyone's a corfball nerd or if it's just a lot of nerds play corfball, but uh, it is that kind of sport, I guess, because it's a minority sport. And for a lot of us, it is something that we enjoy doing. We try to build the sport as much as possible by getting new people to play, getting new people to try it out. And it's great fun for me to get my friends to try out something I'm really interested in. So a lot of us do end up trying to talk to a lot of our friends, getting them along. It does make it look like either a cult or a pyramid scheme, depending on your perspective, but um, uh, it's it's a lot more fun than that and a lot less financially exploitative. So how, how would you explain corporal to the to the layman? So most people on the podcast have already talked about this. It's a control contact mixed sex ball sport that is kind of like somewhere on the spectrum between basketball and netball. There are some rules that are common to netball. For example, you can't move with the ball and you can only pivot in position. There are some uh, aspects of the game that are similar to basketball in that there are no fixed positions you play. You move around the whole court. And the objective of the game is to score points by throwing a ball through a hoop that's three and a half meters above the ground. And the key distinction of this game is that you are not allowed to shoot if your opponent is marking you within arm's reach of your shoulder and is between you and the post. So what this does is it forces you to cooperate with your teammates because you can't pass and because you can't shoot within when your opponent is within range of you. The game is all about being agile, moving out of range of your opponent, having clever passing sequences and tactics to create shooting opportunities and then score. So it is a very fast paced game and it is a game that is, well, that is quite unique in this character because it really equalizes physical disparities between players. But the most important thing about Corfball, and this is perhaps where I end up being a lot more uh, skeptical of the way corfball is characterized, is I refer to it explicitly as a mixed sex sport. I know a lot of people try and refer to corfball as a mixed gender sport or a gender equal sport, but I think there are nuances in that which still suggest that corfball is not fully gender equal, uh, which I will talk about later on. And that being said, I think Corfball does create a space for us to interrogate assumptions about gender and gender equality in sport and really presents a case study where we can imagine what a gender equal sport might look like. Can't wait to chat further about that. Oh, I've, I've, put, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot for the last few years. <laughs> the next big conversation, which is 
kind of already started is gender participation and the I suppose a spectrum you use it for something else the word spectrum but is gender is not binary in the way that people of my generation think of it it's how can we fit in trans people how can we fit in women with high levels of testosterone how can we give them the same training opportunities as everyone else and potentially corporal is an answer to a problem yeah i mean that's that's interesting to think about because strangely some of my trans and non-binary friends uh, didn't feel comfortable taking up corfball because they felt that corfball was a sport that explicitly alienated them because it forced them to misgender themselves in order to play as the sex they were assigned as birth or to either force themselves to identify as either male or female whilst playing. So there is still some interesting sort of conflict or tension in the way we try and include trans and non-binary players and players who are gender non-conforming. And I don't know what the answer to that question is. And in all honesty, I don't feel qualified to talk about these specific details in great length. But there are loads of people who are talking about issues around gender and inclusion in sport. Veronica Ivy comes to mind because of just how high profile she is as a philosopher and as an athlete talking about issues of trans women's representation in sport. But what I find interesting to think about is the way Corfball makes us question our understandings and assumptions about gender more generally. And yes, there are issues of binarism in the sport. And I cannot imagine what a solution to that would be bar massive changes to the rules that allow you to play under designated roles rather than necessarily as a sex or whatever. I don't know what a solution to this problem might be. But the interesting thing here is Corfball as a sport is one that forces you to cooperate with your teammates in some of the most counterintuitive manners. So in Corfball, you can only mark an opponent of the same sex. Now, this to me seemed counterintuitive at first when I was thinking, well, this is a sport that is meant to encourage equality, why can I only mark male opponents? And I realized whilst playing that that's because it forces you to then cooperate with your teammates of the opposite sex. And that was interesting to me because uh, I know Cash was talking about this. One of the effects of corfball is it forces you to be accepting of having women in, and uh, it forces men to be accepting of having women in positions of authority, either as captains or coaches, and to work together as a team. And this rule of being only able to mark opponents of the same sex meant that it forces players to have to cooperate with players of the opposite sex. And if they don't, that becomes an active liability for the team. Now, how do we square that with trying to make the sport equal so that we can have non-binary players play without flattening out something that forces male players who might have certain baggage around gender to rethink that? And I think that's an interesting dilemma I don't know what the solution to that would be. And honestly, what gives me the most hope about this is a lot of younger people coming into corfball now are thinking about this more critically. I know that a lot of my coaches over the years that I've played have been happy to let people play as the gender they identify as, as far as they could within training and within friendly competitions. But it was league rules that we inherited from the IKF or the British Corfball Association or uh, the Scottish Corfball Association, which had to stick to the International Olympic Committee definitions of sex and gender in order to categorize people I and mean, categorize players as the sex they played. So, you know, there are difficulties there of coaches at the local level trying their hardest to make the sport inclusive, but then us inheriting regimes of sporting regulations and rules from higher up that are much more strict and restrictive. So 
there are interesting discussions to be had. And I'm hoping that as new players come into this uh, and a new generation sort of takes the sport forward, we might have people in these positions of authority and administration that might be able to take these aspects of the sport forward and re- revise these rules in ways that are more inclusive. So yeah, that, that's my hope for the future. The Half Court Press is now on Patreon. Patreon is a well-known and trusted online platform that allows our fans to support the sports journalism that we create. We offer a tiered subscription plan with more content being made available to our fans who choose to spend a bit more each month. We at the Half Court Press would appreciate any and all support that you wish to contribute towards our articles, podcasts and interviews. We can talk about this a bit more in depth later in the, in the show. Firstly, before we move on, I'd like to talk a bit more about you specifically. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? What do you know? I can only apologize for what I can imagine must be an editing nightmare later on to get the interview in a coherent order. Uh, my name is Vivek Santayana. I play for Edinburgh City Corfball Club. Uh, outside of Corfball, I'm a massive tabletop role-playing nerd, and I am a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. So do you play Corfball for the University of Edinburgh then? I used to. So I'm not a student at the university. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow. And I used to, I started playing corfball at Edinburgh University when I was a PhD student. I had some friends when I was an undergrad who used to play corfball. And at the time, I just didn't get into it. But uh, during my PhD, I had a friend who just invited me along and I went along and I had an absolute blast. There was one person whom I remember uh, because I went into the corfball club and I had laryngitis at the time. So I could not speak to anybody after our induction week taster session. And the next week when my larynx was better, one of the coaches at Edinburgh Uni Corfball Club came up to me and I was quite on the fence. I'm like, you know, this looks interesting, but it feels really cliquey and I'm not sure if I want to join. There are a lot of undergrads who are much younger than me. I'm not sure if I fit in. And this one guy comes up to me, uh, Mike, just says, you know, we didn't get to speak last week because you had laryngitis. So I'm going to sit next to you. And I was wondering, your student number starts with 11. So you must be much older than everyone else because you would have been at the university in 2011. Uh, uh, what's your story? Wow, these people are nice. They're, they're making the effort to get to know me. And they noticed that I was feeling out of place last week and are making the active effort to make me feel integrated. So yeah, they're lovely people. And that's what made me stick to corfball. And I played for Edinburgh Uni for a couple of years. And then just the training times didn't work with my PhD because I'd work basically nine to five and Edinburgh Uni's training started at half past five. So that wasn't enough time for me to get from my office to home to get change and then get to the gym. So I started playing for Edinburgh City then. And a lot of the friends I had at Edinburgh Uni had graduated that time and had gone on to Edinburgh City. So I basically went with wherever my friends were going. But yeah, Edinburgh Uni was great fun to play with. I still have very fond memories of Christy, one of our coaches who hands down won coach of the year twice in a row because she was one of the one of the most effective coaches I've, I've worked with because she knew exactly how to adapt her feedback to different players and what they needed to hear at the time. Uh, during training, she'd give you very detailed notes, but during a match, she would give you the headlines of the immediate priorities for you to implement at the game to play more effectively. 
and she knew and could very intuitively respond to the different learning styles people had and give them coaching in the way that was most effective. So yeah, she was a delight to work with and I could really feel my game improve working with her as a result. Did you say that you did your undergrad work at Edinburgh as well? Yeah. Edinburgh Uni seems to really like me and the number of offers and funding they gave me. So I just stayed. What did you do before you were at uni? Did you go to uni straight from school? Or Yeah, I did. I came to uni straight from school and I, had, I did not have any sporting talent when I was at school. And I think it was a vicious cycle between the fact that the way my school handled sport wasn't really suitable for autistic kids to pick up sports and I never got coaching that I could actually internalize and because of the environment I went to I mean it was an all-boys school that was really obsessed with sport to an unhealthy degree and it embodied a lot of the toxic masculinity that went with it because I wasn't immediately good enough like right off the mark I got bullied a lot and got sidelined and ostracized so I never did pick up a sport I was a perfectly respectable track athlete. I could, um, I was a decent sprinter. I could run long distances, but I never bothered because I just didn't bother to train because of all the bullying I put up with. But I was never good at a team sport or any sport that required skill or dexterity. And then when I came to Edinburgh Uni and I took up core football during my PhD, I finally got coaching that actually worked. You know, when I actually got proper coaching where people who knew how to coach people tried to teach me a sport and didn't bully me or ostracize me because I didn't pick it up straight away. And that made all the difference. And coming to Corfball straight after that, yeah, I guess that really helped. But I was a massive nerd in school. Like I was, you know, the bookish academic type. And even when I was at uni, I was very much, uh, very much the kind who would uh, aspire towards an academic career, I suppose is the polite way of saying it. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I found couple of things you said quite interesting in terms of sport can be quite yes or no black or white binary in a different way to what you're talking about in in terms of gender you you can do it or you can't whereas as a coach who who as a player was very average myself I like to think that the coach can have a huge impact in terms of actually teaching someone actually finding potential and this although it's a slightly different conversation, does go hand in hand with neurodiversity. People who are are not neurologically diverse find sports a lot easier, therefore get it quicker than those who are neurologically diverse. Therefore, it's a huge pool of players that we are not making use of in any given sport. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it comes down to a few more grains of nuance there because there are some profiles of neurodiversity that do make it hard for people to pick up sports. You know, I've uh, known a lot of kids at school who had issues with their motor control and their, uh, their motor skills and their dexterity, and they struggled. They would struggle to throw a javelin straight, or they would struggle to dribble whilst playing hockey. And it was incredibly challenging for them. But then there are other profiles of neurodiversity, which when given the right kind of instruction, might make it easier for you to internalize that. And I know that for me, because I tend to hyperfixate on things, when some of my coaches gave me very clear and direct things to work on, it was easier for me to work on them and 
pick those up because the coaches knew how to coach me in a way that was uh, suitable for me. So, for example, uh, Mike Garbett, who was, a, who was the coach at Edinburgh Uni I mentioned, who was a really welcoming, he was coaching me the other day and he noticed that I was off balance because I tended to lean further back when I shoot. He just told me, stop doing that. You're trying to make distance by leaning back and overcompensating. And that's why you're unable to get power from your legs. If you make the distance using your footwork, you don't need to go too far out. Just take a short step and make sure you're getting the power from your legs. You'll be fine. And within a few minutes of just practicing that a few times, I was just completely like tunnel vision focused on getting that right. And I managed to pick that up. So, you know, it it's not just a question of neurodiversity, making it hard for people to pick up a sport. It is people's response to neurodiversity is what creates or takes down those barriers in the first place. There are specific conditions of you know, being on the autism spectrum, a specific forms of neurodiversity that are more amenable to others because of the way people respond to them. But you know, one of my friends who has dyspraxia really struggles because no coach was able to give them training in a way that helped them play the sport in a way that was sensitive to their needs at the time. So you're absolutely right regarding neurodiversity. I just want to add that layer of nuance that it's not necessarily neurodiversity, but the wider response within our society to neurodiversity that makes it challenging or makes it easier depending on the circumstance. Dyspraxia is, of course, a condition which more people probably have and realise that no one really knows much about. It can affect cognition, it can affect the speed of learning and social skills. So a team sports environment can be a bit more challenging than mm. mainstream thinkers. Absolutely. The Half Court Press is on social media. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Back to yourself. What school did you go to? Uh, I went to a uh, very posh, fancy boarding school in India. Um, Yeah, I... I didn't have the, I mean, I had an interesting time there because my parents sent me off there for a number of reasons and none of which actually took into consideration the reality of the situation because no one really tells you about the culture and the climate and environment in a, in a place like that. And there were some great experiences I had in terms of the teachers I had, some of the friends I made, but there was also a lot of, there was a lot of things which euphemistically is referred to as character building, but basically are the kinds of things you end up spending a small fortune in therapy to get over. So, uh, yeah, that was an interesting time. Uh, it, uh, it was, um, it was a shame because had I had the opportunity to take up course ball in, in that school, I guess I would have enjoyed it a lot more because it would have really changed my perspective on the way I see myself and society more generally. And it's a shame we didn't have opportunities like this back then. And I'm delighted to have gotten the chance when I was at uni. What part of India were you in school at? So this was uh, in Dehradun, which is a um, small town in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's a lovely place. Uh, the Beatles went there to get absolutely stoned. But besides that, it's a nice small little town with unpredictable weather in a very hilly region, which can get really cold in the winter. Uh, so yeah, I felt right at home in the climate in Scotland. Did you come to Scotland purely for your, your academic career? I mean, yes, 
that is true. Um, came to Scotland for uni and then stayed for my undergrad, stayed for my master's, stayed for my PhD and got a research fellowship. So yeah, that's that's been me for the last 10 years. Edinburgh is one of these cities which it sucks you in. It's not the greatest city in the world, but it's probably in the top 10 for most comfortable. People come and, and end up staying because it's, everything's really easy. It's a nice town. It's, it's, it's small, small enough to be comfortable, big enough to be exciting. Well, I mean, you've, yes and no. Uh, you spend long enough in a trade union or you become a member of your tenants union and see exactly how terrible the housing market is to see the darker underbelly of the city, of the staggering inequalities and, and, and lack of diversity and all the various problems that go with this city. But um, it is a lovely place. And of all the places I've lived, Edinburgh is definitely the place I've stayed the longest. And it is the place that has drawn me in the most. And I have met some wonderful people here, both in and out of Corfball. And the communities that I've been part of are always incredibly welcoming and inclusive and supportive in a way that both gives me a very warped impression of what the city actually is like, but also gives me hope to try and see what the city can be like if it were more inclusive. So, you know, there is that. So looking at your career somewhat, your corporal career, you started playing with Edinburgh Uni. Uh, you've moved on to Edinburgh City Corporal Club. Mm-hmm. Is that where you are now? Are you still with? Yeah, I'm still with Edinburgh City. I was on the fence about whether I'd continue with corporal this year. But then it got to the start of the season and I realized exactly how much I miss all the people in Corfball and I just could not keep myself away from it. So what have been the successes in your career, Corfball career? Well, there was one season when I captained the Edinburgh City third team. And for me, it was just a nice opportunity to go from a position where I'd never played a sport before to actually being a captain of a team and working with a lot number of people, trying to sort of grow as a captain and learn leadership skills. And there weren't any spectacular wins or outstanding goals that I've scored that I can particularly be proud of. But I guess some of the highlights of my career have just been like learning how to play the sport, being a part of the community and uh, really getting getting to know the people who are part of Scottish Corfball. I'm not a great player by any stretch of the imagination, but I have so much fun playing and there've been some games that I've played that I really enjoyed uh, so much so that I genuinely struggled to try and remember what the result is, but I do remember how much fun I had with the, um, when I was playing the game themselves. And I guess some of the challenges have just been the number of times I've gotten injured. Uh, it, I've had so many seasons that I've, I've just sat half a season out because I had a very severe knee injury or I pulled my muscle really badly and just couldn't walk for a few weeks and um yeah it was um like the injuries have made it hard and i guess for me it's not just the physical injury but just the psychological toll it takes to have worked so hard to rehabilitate an injury and then be back to square one and injure yourself again but yeah that's been that's been my the the highs and lows of my corporal career it's often the way with injuries isn't it you footballers bang on about how their physios work harder when they're injured compared to when, when they're not injured because mm. what happens is if you if you don't train your body weakens you come back you end up putting yeah. a hamstring or something like this the, the body's funny like that absolutely okay so on a more personal note what makes you Vivek well um 
I guess, uh, I guess it's just that um, I, I was saying to a friend of mine that I always end up in situations where I, I walk into a place, I see something wrong with it, and I just have to immediately try and fix it. And there was a time when I was taking the corporal refereeing exam, and a bunch of people had issues with the exam because they could not read the test because of their dyslexia. And my immediate response for this was to get people together to talk to them about what they needed, larger print, questions on larger print, questions on tinted paper, and then just represent that to the refereeing coordinator of the SKA and also the Edinburgh City Corfball Club Committee, because I just thought we should be able to make the test accessible and we shouldn't be excluding people with dyslexia in such a manner in corfball. And I guess that's just been me. And I found it astonishing that for a sport that began in like what, 1901, 1902, it was in the year 2021 that for the first time in the history of the International Corfball Federation, which has been going since the 60s, we have had an equal number of male and female referees at a top level IKF tournament. And I noticed that Scottish corfball has barely any women referees. And again, I'm not sure what the solution to the problem is, but I've been in touch with refereeing coordinator for IKF, I'm oh, sorry, for SKA, um, Jack Pitt, who is a delight to work with, who is so on the ball with this and has already identified a lot of the cultural problems and the uh, structural barriers that discourage women from getting involved as referees. And I don't know, I just, I just cannot stand these kinds of inequalities persisting because I guess that's my autism all over again. For me, it just feels like a logical contradiction. It just conceptually doesn't make sense that we are in a sport that advocates gender equality, but we still haven't gotten our own house in order. So yeah, that's me. And apart from that, I'm just, just a massive nerd. I have the interesting distinction of having scored the highest in the ball theory test a couple of years ago because I can do theory tests. I know the rules and I can rules lawyer the hell out of them because I'm, I, I do tabletop gaming. I deal with the rules lawyers on a regular basis. So yeah, being a massive nerd who cannot tolerate any kind of, well, inequality in a community. That's, that is probably me in a very concise nutshell. Well, that covers the next question of what is your approach to sports? Yeah, I guess. I mean, for me, sport has always been about the community and corfball especially has taught me the value of that because it is a it is an amateur sport. So the stakes are much lower, but also that places a lot of the burden on organizing and facilitating the sport and running the clubs on the people running them themselves and their voluntary effort and labor at going above and beyond what is expected of them. And like people like Dan Pratt are genuinely inspiring to work with because of just how much they love the sport and how much they give to the community without any, without necessarily expecting anything back in return. And I like that because that is very self-selecting to the kind of people you want to have around you. You have people who really want to make a difference in their communities and in, in the sport. And that naturally means a lot of people who play corfball are people who want to grow the sport and make the community better. And I guess it's just a natural fit for people like me who want to also try and address this when um, in the most delightful of manners, I was talking to Christy, who was one of the coaches at Ed City, who was the coach from Edinburgh Uni I mentioned. And just completely by the by, I mentioned that we're, I'm, I'm going to be doing this interview. I'm quite nervous. I don't know what I'll say. And Christy and I were just saying, well, just talk about ways we can improve the sport. I mean, you know, have more outreach, have more funding so that we can start reaching out to people. 
and so that it's not just a sport played by white men and white women in Scotland because Scotland is in a particularly diverse community. We need to be reaching out to schools and reaching out to local communities, reaching out to people from deprived backgrounds so that we can broaden the demographic of the sport and make sure we have more people of color, more like LGBTQ plus people, more gender non-conforming people joining the sport. And this was just as we were passing the ball to each other, taking shots, warming up for training, we were just having this conversation. Course ball just naturally attracts people like this because it's an amateur sport. And I think the community that comes out of course ball and the way people proactively build a fairer community is genuinely something that reflects my own approach to sport. And like I said at the start, course ball as a sport can be a case study of building a society that is more equal and more egalitarian. The Half Court Press is a multi-sport media outlet. You can check out our articles, opinion pieces, and PDF magazines on our website, www.halfcourtpressmagazine.com. Again, we've already started into the next question of what is important to you in sports. You've mentioned engagements, participation opportunities, and equality is kind of what we've been covering here. Hmm. How do we improve things? Okay, uh, how much time do I have? Um, Well, there's a lot of interesting ways to go about this. There was an interesting study I came across a while ago. This was back, the study was published in 2015. And it found that playing korfball didn't really affect people's attitudes toward gender outside of sport. Uh, This was a study published in uh, Sport and Society in 2015. I cannot remember who the name of the authors are. Can you tell my academic background coming in here? But a more recent study in 2019 or 2018, I can't remember, found that korfball really affected the way kids perceived and performed their gender. So I think there's a lot to be said about the way we interact with kids in korfball. This was the, the second study I mentioned was in, I think, Sport, Education and Society, a different journal. And I think the most important thing to do in that regard is try and have korfball available to kids at a much younger age before a lot of their attitudes around gender and society have been hardened by the rest of their education and the environment they grow up. So obviously, outreach and bringing korfball to schools is one way of doing this. But this needs to be underpinned by clear material commitment to outreach and development. And that's where the question of funding comes into play. We need to make sure sport clubs have the resources to do this. You know, whether it's clubs that are based around universities or cities can get the funding to bring korfball to schools and local communities, or whether the Scottish government can provide funding to local like korfball clubs. I think it was a bit of a travesty that the Scotland korfball team had to pay their own way to the European Championships a few weeks ago because they're representing the country and... This means that only people who have the wealth and resources to be able to do this are able to represent the country. And that just creates a barrier straight away. And whatever they're doing is, you know, for the good of the sport, for the local community and for and represents Scotland as a as a country. So it's important that they get that funding. And, you know, they don't have to fund this by organizing a pub quiz every now and then or, you know, they should be more reliable sources of funding available for them. And really, the way we improve a sport is to support the people who are doing the work at the grassroots. And I know that there's so many people at Edinburgh Uni who do a lot of this work. And Edinburgh Uni is one of the wealthiest universities in the, in the UK. 
I think universities have a responsibility towards their local communities and sport could be one way that the university could fund Edinburgh Uni Corfball Club to take corfball to schools and coach schools in the summer or something. A lot of people already do that on a regular basis. And the same with Edinburgh City, you know, could receive funding from the council or the government. There are grants that we should be eligible for or grants that should be made available to sports clubs to do this. And really the biggest way we can develop a sport is to provide the resources to, to do so because there's already a lot of people who on a shoestring budget put in so much work and are blocked by the lack of resources that they have. And I want to see people like Dan Pratt, people like Christy Smiley, Michael Garbett, people who put in so much time and effort into growing corfball, really get the resources and feel empowered to be able to make a much wider difference in their communities and in Scottish corfball more generally. Um, so yeah, you know, putting the money where the mouth is, I suppose, is the easiest, well, the most robust way of developing corfball in the long run. And then implementing that through things like schools, outreach programs, working with local communities, people from deprived backgrounds. And um, yeah, there are mm, there are various ways we can do this. And I'm sure people who are much more engaged with this will have much clearer roadmaps than I would. But these are just my broad ideas and sort of opinions on how we can go about doing this. Regular listeners to the Half Court Press podcast will know that my main sport is hockey. I've also been involved in football as a coach, as a player, as a low level. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about professionalism, how clubs can earn money and get money and have professional players and professional coaches, especially in a developing sport like hockey, which is broadly amateur across the UK and specifically in Scotland. But without losing the, the community engagement, football in the UK has lost its community engagement. They're all publicly limited companies. Netball, which is a, a similar level sport to hockey in terms of where it's at in the mindset of, of the country, their elite division in the UK is a franchise-based setup. They're not clubs, they're, they're teams. I'm more of a fan of a community interest company-style set up where you can take public funding but also earn money yourselves but the money that you earn does not go towards shareholders it goes back into the community actually the setup is almost identical to that of most amateur sports clubs because you you need a committee you need a chairperson you need a secretary and it's, it's, a, it's a level of communal decision making do you think that this could work in corfball well, uh, I'll take it a step further and I say I think it is working really well at Corfball because you're right, that is what a lot of amateur sports are like. And I am really delighted to see that that is the kind of organization that a lot of Corfball clubs are. And also the, the way the SKA is administered is you know, similarly a committee comprising all the various delegates from different clubs who are elected into the positions and very much are working for the benefit of the sport and all the money goes towards the sport itself rather than to any shareholders. I don't know. A part of me is, I think this is because I've been spending so much time on picket lines recently as a trade unionist as well, that um, I've been thinking of, well, think of sport from the lens of mutual aid and how, you know, especially in the aftermath of COVID, when mutual aid became such an important way of organizing society and responding to ethical crises and shortfalls in, in like, distribution resources. I was thinking of how sports could also be a form of mutual aid. And it's interesting to think about models that we can follow where, you know, we may be able to receive public funding or also receive funding from a wider community. And that funding goes towards creating resources that are shared between people 
and, and there is co- collective decision-making that focuses on grassroots needs and interests rather than decisions being made higher up, actually alienated from the people making those decisions. And Scottish Corporal is interesting because, because it's such a small community and because there's so many people at the grassroots of people who actually play Corporal, coach Corporal, referee, who are directly involved or at least you know within two or three degrees of separation from the chair of the, of the SKA, it really is very focused on the grassroots level of how corfball is run and played. And that makes a huge difference. And that's why I think the SK has been very responsive to the needs of the community. And I completely agree with you that that is a very good way of running a sport. And, you know, um, it's interesting you mentioned hockey because um, coming from India, hockey and cricket have very interesting histories in, our, in you know, back home when the longest time in India was a dominant force in the, the field of hockey, Hockey received a lot of funding and then cricket became incredibly popular and a commercial success. And I've lost count of the number of scandals around corruption in the Indian Premier League that have happened with like cricket and all the rigged matches and the racketeering with all the gambling. And it is just such a catastrophe. And meanwhile, hockey is no longer given the kind of support that it used to receive. Uh, Fun fact, um, a lot of people have misconceptions about what the national sport of India is. India does not have a national sport because a nine-year-old girl got into an argument with her history teacher on whether or not cricket or hockey was a national sport and lodged an FOI request to the Indian government and got an answer from the government that said the Ministry of Home Affairs does not recognize any sport as a national sport. And no sport is given any adequate funding in India as a result of this. Yeah, I really wish we ran sports on a much more sort of social sort of community sort of focused sort of approach, whether it's through mutual aid or community enterprises or whatever else. Yeah, in terms of a business model here, what we're really talking about is a cooperative. Yeah. The Half Court Press is on social media. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As we begin to wind up, who have been the best players that you've played with? So when you sent me the question, I was actually thinking of how I'd answer this. And I'm going to tell you what isn't going to be my answer and then explain what is as a result. There was one player whom I had so much fun playing against at the British University Championships back when I was playing for Edinburgh Uni. Uh, We were playing at like the third level of the tournament. So we were nowhere near one of the best teams. And there was someone from, I can't remember which team it was. I think it was Leicester or Sheffield, who was taller than me, but both of us were basically going off the same playbook. And it was so satisfying playing against someone who was at the same skill level and had the same tactics as I did. And there were some times when, you know, I called his bluff and let him shoot from range and he scored. And there were other times when I could predict what play he was going with and I just completely shut him out. And we had a nice sort of rivalry between us. And I had so much fun playing against him that I went to try and shake hands with him personally at the end of the match. And he just blew me off because he was frustrated that our team won and his lost. And that really upset me because I had so much fun playing against someone and he was just being such a conceited and arrogant prick at the end of the match. And then I realized what I valued about Corfball was just the community around it. And they're Bob Matters and Nick Duxbury from Edinburgh City were just a delight to play with when I was at uni because they could tell I was a beginner and I would try to play. And then when the ball would be in the other division, they'd be like, right, here's what you need to do. And they would coach me in the middle of the match. 
And, you know, they knew that they were helping me learn the sport because for them, it wasn't fun playing against someone who's a complete beginner who didn't know how to defend them. And they were building the sport by helping me learn. And I just really enjoyed playing against them and playing with them eventually when I played with Bob on the team. And there are other people who were just absolute delight to play with. Kitty Dutton is a friend of mine who is just really great at shooting from range. And I think there were times when we managed to play really well together when we were playing in the, the Scottish Cup, the SKA Cup finals, when we were representing Edinburgh City in a sort of mixed team. Jackie Moe is a friend of mine who I go, we used to be in the same board game group together. So every time we play together in training, it's good fun because there's a friend of mine whom I, I know how he plays and we both get on really well. So we have that synergy between us and he's a fantastic player as well. He's just so naturally talented at picking up a sport. So there's some people whom I've had so much fun playing with and playing against. So yeah, it's, it's nice to be part of the same community with them. And uh, I actually miss playing with them sometimes. Who have been the best coaches that you've worked with? I mean, I have to, I've mentioned Mike Garbutt, Christy Smiley, for all the reasons I talked about. Christy really knows how to coach people and respond to their needs and things they need to hear. Mike is incredibly good at like, organizing training and giving people very incisive and very perceptive feedback and being very encouraging so people actually are motivated to learn. Dan Pratt is just an absolute delight to be around. And I think getting to know him took a bit of time because I think he did come off as a bit abrasive at times. But when I got to know him, I realized exactly how kind and generous he was and uh, just how much he loved the sport and how much he, how much time and energy he dedicated to helping other people learn. And yeah, Dan was talking to me about how important it is for him to help people enjoy the sport because that's what motivates people to learn. And I miss Dan Pratt's high fives at the end of the session because, you know, you've had a really hard session. You're completely exhausted. You're not sure if you're picking up the technique. You're really struggling and questioning whether you're actually learning. And then Dan Pratt comes up to you and says, well done today, Vivek. You really put in your 100% high five. That makes a huge difference. And one of the things I really miss about COVID is just the subtle sort of community bonding that that sort of precludes because you can't high five each other or just pat people on the shoulder. Dan Trapp must be seriously out of pocket. Whenever I ask people this, you know, who's the best coach you've played with, you've worked with, Dan Pratt comes up quite often. I think he's been bribing people. Well, I genuinely cannot think of a better ambassador for Scottish Corfball than Dan Pratt because uh, just you can tell how much he loves the sport. And that is genuinely inspiring. And I love playing Corfball, but I don't, I mean, I have other priorities in my life that I invest a lot more energy to, but just seeing how much Dan Pratt loves corfball, it's something that I take to other places, whether I'm a trade unionist as well. And uh, I sometimes say to myself, right, I need to do for my union what Dan Pratt does for corfball, because really he is an inspiring person to work with just because of uh, how much he gives to this community. And that makes a huge difference to everyone who knows him. The Half Court Press is now on Patreon. Patreon is a well-known and trusted online platform that allows our fans to support the sports journalism that we create. We offer a tiered subscription plan with more content being made available to our fans who choose to spend a bit more each month. We at the Half Court Press would appreciate any and all support that you wish to contribute towards our articles, podcasts, 
and interviews. Last three questions. What has been your favorite game of corfball as a player? Favorite game of corfball as a player? Well, I guess this was at the uh, British University Championships a few years ago when I noticed that one of my opponents was considerably slower than I was, and I was basically running rings around him. So I just basically looked at the rest of my team, looked at my coach, everyone nodded. And then everyone knew that basically I would get myself free and everyone would pass to me and I'd take a shot or I'd pass to someone else who was free because the other player, the other male player would then have to cover me so my male teammate would be free. And it was just so much fun being that person when you identify the weak link in your opponent's team, uh, in your opponent's tactics, and you just run rings around them and you just drive a wedge through that with a mallet. It was just so much fun because I felt all of the training we did, all of our tactics came together really well. And I never managed to score because I always was unlucky and my shots never dropped. They just bounced off the rim. But the way we just completely dominated the attack was really satisfying. And I had so much fun. Uh, all that training, it felt like all that training had paid off in that game. What has been your favorite game of ball as a fan? My favorite game as a fan? Well, that's a tricky one. Um, I really enjoyed the Scotland-Slovakia semifinal at the... Euro Championship because like for the first time I was watching an international sporting fixture where if my team lost or if the player I was rooting for lost there wouldn't be massive racist backlash against people of color because with the like football final the racism was terrifying when Raducanu was in the US Open final I was scared that if she'd lost then immigrants and people of color would face the music again whereas with this team conveniently, um, there would be no such racist backlash because it's corfball. Not people, not many people are watching. But also it is my friends playing. Like these were people I was on a first name terms with and they were playing so well for the first half and Slovakia really gave them a run for the money. It was a shame, that, it was a challenging result, but it was a result that, you know, they fought really hard against and I mean, they played really well and I have nothing but the deepest respect for all of them. And uh, yeah, there's no shame in losing a match like that. They had really given everything they had on, on the pitch and it showed. And I was really proud of them. I was proud of my, I was proud of the Scotland team, but more importantly, I was proud of my friends who had gone and represented Scotland. And it was just so much fun to see them and, you know, them playing with like Scotland shirts and singing the national anthem. Now you mentioned earlier that you were a captain of one of the teams. Mm -hmm. What has been your favorite game of court ball as a captain? Well, um, I wasn't captain for that long. It was just a season, but I've also refereed for a bit and, well, I've refereed for, for a long time, actually. And I guess my favorite game as both a captain and as a referee really is any game that involves Dundee City, because I've never come across a team that is more respectful and courteous to an official as Dundee. There have been times when I've made mistakes and, you know, incorrect calls, and they've just very happily gone with that and not challenge me or argued with me in the way some other teams have. Now, some other teams have argued with me and I got a call 100% right. Like someone actually went and complained to the referee coordinator for a tournament because of a call they didn't agree with. The referee coordinator said, ah, yes, I was assessing Vivek when he was refereeing for that. That call he made, 100% um, correct. He gave a penalty because 
you were obstructing a throw in from the other side when there was a player free. So even though it technically would have been a restart because there was a scoring opportunity because a player was free, that is escalated to the point of a penalty. He was 100% correct. But Dundee, they are genuinely some of the nicest people to both play against as a captain or referee because they are very respectful and courteous and they they embody the sportsmanship that I would like to see a lot of other teams live up to. Really, there are some teams that I really struggle to referee because I know I'll get yelled at by the players. And the difficulty there is, you know, a lot of people say some people are just generally abrasive and are equal opportunities offenders of just being really nasty to everyone. But there are different stakes there. When a middle-aged white man is really aggressive and hostile towards a woman or a person of color, then what they don't realize is for people from these minoritized backgrounds, when a white man of that description speaks to you that way, more often than not, you have a lot of trauma because you are more likely to have experienced a hate crime in an environment like that. And, you know, they don't realize that sometimes just being nasty to everyone just has a disproportionate effect on people from minoritized backgrounds. So it would just be nicer if they just weren't nasty to anyone. But Dundee really embody that. And I guess part of Dundee's team also, like there's one division that is a family and it's just so much fun to watch them play as well because um, there's one match when they're all being really professional, referring to each other by their first names. And it's like, Simon, Simon, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And then a pass goes slightly odd. And then he says, dad, what the hell are you doing? Just, just seeing that was just so much fun. But they really embody that sportsmanship and just the nice, the camaraderie of being part of a corporal community together. And yeah, I, I want to see more teams be as courteous to referees and officials like Dundee. On that note, Vivek Santayana of Edinburgh City Corporal Club. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about corporal. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod. If you have enjoyed this show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Facebook.